Welcome to episode 35 of the Neural Network. Today, we're venturing into the intricate world of addiction and substance use disorder research with a leading expert in the field, Dr. Chris Olson from the Olson Lab at the Medical College of Wisconsin. In this episode, we'll explore the profound influence of environmental factors on addiction and drug-seeking behavior. We'll talk about some breakthroughs in research and talk about the promising future of treatments and interventions in the field. So, whether you're a researcher, a student, or someone just curious about the science behind substance use disorder, this episode promises to fill you with enlightening insights. So, let's dive in. There we go. Dr. Chris Olson, welcome to the Neural Network. Thank you very much. Thanks happy for joining. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to be here. Yeah. It was so, so for the listeners, uh, Chris was actually a member of my dissertation committee, which was a cast of characters of, uh, I think the mean age of my dissertation committee was like, I don't know, 80. <laughs> yeah. I tried to bring it down. I'm not so young myself, but I probably did bring it down. Yeah. And it was full of just these, these old school physiologists that were ready to fight tooth and nail on, you know, this five millimeters of mercury of oxygen. And then and then I had Chris that kind of balanced out the uh, <laughs> the group and had this understanding of these neural neural networks and the actual neuroscience behind it. And it was funny because you know when we we started we were doing some Western blotting and things like that, looking at protein expression. And uh, at the time I thought, wow, this is like crazy neuroscience. And then <laughs> moving from there into you know postdoc doing patch clamping and actual neural network analyses and multi electrode array stuff, and I realized, wow, like. Neuroscience itself is uh, a lot more complex than we gave it credit as physiologists yeah. going, but, <laughs> you know, so it's been fun to sort of mix them. But anyways, what I, I wanted to bring you on because I think ever since you gave a lecture in the neuroscience course that I took many years ago as a grad student, I've always been interested in, in some of the stuff that you're doing, uh, you know, in particular with the neural networks and the drugs and, and addiction and things like that. So <laughs> I guess, could you, could you start by, you know, giving us an idea of like from a scientific perspective, kind of what addiction is and how you go about studying it in your, in your program of research? Sure. So when we think about the human condition, we think about a, a number of things that really have to deal with like impaired control, risky use, social impairments, you know, so how, how is a substance that's being misused alter an individual's life? in such a way to where, you know, in some cases it means losing family, in some cases it means losing a job, a house, uh, and other things like that. But really a more, a modern view of what you could call addiction or what's clinically defined as a substance use disorder really has to do with changes in behavior. And it's departed a bit from uh, the older view that like dependence and tolerance although these are still acknowledged, but these are also known consequences of repeated use of medications such as opioids um, for the treatment, as an example, for chronic pain. And so just because an individual is taking what could be a pretty high amount of a substance that can be misused, that really doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to meet a substance use um, disorder 
diagnosis. So an example would be someone, for example, experiencing chronic cancer pain or something like this. Over the years, they may have developed quite a tolerance to the opioids they're on. So they may be taking extremely high levels of opioids. And if you took those away, you would see withdrawal effects. But that's not at all what we would consider to be a diagnosis for substance use Mm -hmm. disorder. Ah, interesting. I didn't even realize that. So, so basically then the, the actual uh, substance use disorder or the, the addiction type of, of phenotype is separate from that of just the, um, buildup of tolerance to a certain drug. Cause I know like oh. a lot of times the misconception then would be, you hear, you hear it a lot of times in classical type of examples or in social type of examples where, you say that over time you you lose the response to the drugs, you have to take more and more and more, and that's sort of what builds the addiction. So it's it's different mm-hmm. than that then. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely thought to contribute that this kind of escalating use to take more and more in order to achieve the same effect is definitely a component of it, but it also gets to the reason that there is that dose increase, right? So is this an increase in dose just to manage the pain because you've developed a tolerance to the analgesic effects? Or is it because you're seeking a strong euphoric response and you're taking more and more in order to obtain that? Ah, interesting. So it's, it has to do a lot with the the seeking type of behavior in the day right, right. that's affecting Ah. Well, look at that. We're already like five minutes in and you changed my view on it. But <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> and I study opioids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so it's it, that's an interesting <clears throat> fact, though. And, and, and what I wanted to, to kind of ask alongside of that is that when you then go in to look at different parts of the brain and to understand how these uh, substance use disorder circuits function – how do you attack a problem then when, you know, I guess the the classical, perhaps physiolo- physiologist type of idea of looking at the brain would say, we have a decreased response to the drugs. So we're going to look at the area that gives you that response versus now if you're looking for sort of drug seeking behavior activities, are those mm-hmm. sort of integrated within the same circuits or are they sort of different behavioral circuits or... A little bit of both. So there's a lot of overlap between the areas of the brain that respond to a particular substance and drive its reinforcing or what you might call rewarding effects. Uh, But when you talk about seeking, it does involve some of the same brain regions, but a little bit different. So we think of a lot of seeking arising more from amygdala and prefrontal cortex Whereas, you know, you've, I'm sure you've heard a lot of people talk about the nucleus accumbens in terms of that reinforcing value. And it's not, it's certainly not the only area that is involved in that, but that's really a, a locus for those types of effects. And so, again, yeah, there's a lot of overlap, but there's definitely some distinctions to be made. Ah, so, so then, you know, I'm thinking of in terms of, I, th- I think I remember you talking about, and I don't remember if those are your studies or if they were studies of others, um, talking about those classic neuroscience studies where the, the mice were self-administering either the cocaine or self-administering, you know, the, the optogenetic stimulation instead of the, the cocaine in order to sort mm-hmm. of act as a proxy. Were those, you did some of those studies, didn't you? Right. We do intravenous drug self-administration studies, both in rats and mice. It really just depends on the particular study that we're interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this, this is the, 
this is really the lens by which we look through um, in in order to study addiction or substance use disorder. So then, so 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 running through those studies, at least from my basic understanding, you know, it's that you can give mice or rodents or something an access to a certain drug and you can test how often that they administer that drug to themselves if they have the ability to, to press a lever and give it to themselves. And you can track sort of how many times they do it throughout the day and you just sort of see mm-hmm. this exponential increase, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and so when you're going into target those brain regions then because i remember I, I think that some of the the studies shifted instead of giving the drug then used optogenetic stimulation to stimulate those areas that they thought were most responsive to the drug and they saw mm-hmm. a similar response now is that do you know was that in the areas that let's say for like a well, I guess cocaine isn't necessarily a painkiller, but if if you put it into the light, if you put it into the light of let's say like an opioid, just to to make mm-hmm. it a little simpler, simpler, you know, if you stimulate the areas that give rise to some analgesia versus that of you stimulate the areas that uh, give rise to the drug seeking behavior, are there different effects that you see on sort of that exponential increase in self administration? Yeah. And of course, that's all going to depend on a pain state. So, you know, if you think about, for example, the periaqueductal gray in terms of analgesic effects of opioids, you know, you that's really not a site of, of reinforcement or what you might call reward unless an animal is in a pain state. And so that's what we would call a negative reinforcement behavior. So, you know, um, you can train animals to self-administer an analgesic such as an opioid if they're in a pain state, and that will kind of give you that acquisition of self-administration. But in the absence of that, we can see that there is a dissociation. So that's a bit different than the classical reinforcement pathway. Ah, so so that brings up uh, an important point, I guess, in the 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 concept of a state dependency, which mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've I've certainly researched to death with with my program. A lot of it is based on understanding state dependencies of of neural networks. But um, within your research itself, I know that you're interested in some of the things with environmental factors that are influencing um, uh, substance use disorders. Could mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about some of that work that you're 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 up to? Sure. And uh, since we're on the topic of pain, we do have a study right now. We just published the preprint. It's um, uh, just about to be submitted. But we have a study where we looked at a chronic neuropathic pain model in mice. And there were a few other studies out there that actually looked at whether or not pain would increase like opioid intake and seeking. And so... The literature, on that, the literature on that is a little bit mixed, but as a general rule about the findings, um, when you look at low or medium dose unit doses of opioids that you're training the animals to self-administer, it looks very similar actually to an animal that is not in a, in a chronic pain state. And so these are still high enough amounts to produce that analgesic effect, at least as measured by von Frey sensitivity. But an interesting thing was that two of these studies did extinction testing 
further out. So after abstinence, extinction testing is where you put the animals back into the self-administration chambers and everything is the same except there's not a drug being delivered. So the animals can press a lever and they get a cue light that came on when they used to get an opioid infusion, but the opioid's not there anymore. And we use this as a proxy for drug-seeking behavior. Um, We know that a lot of the same brain regions that are observed in human studies under functional MRI that are kind of engaged during um, uh, triggered drug craving are also engaged in rodents. And under these extinction sessions, they actually, two of these studies found elevated opioid seeking in animals with that chronic pain state. Now, I mentioned that concept of negative reinforcement, where if the animals are in a pain state, you know, the opioids are now doing two things for them, if you want to put these this in fairly simple terms. They are producing positive reinforcement. So you would see this in normal animals and animals in a pain state. So um, you can think of that as producing a euphoric-like effect. But in animals with a chronic pain state, it's also producing an analgesic effect. And this is a negative reinforcement process. So now in these animals, you have two underlying behavioral processes that could drive drug seeking. And so the authors of these studies actually concluded that most likely it was the fact that these animals had that chronic pain state and they associated it, that uh, self-administration of the opioids with both those positive effects and the relief of the pain state. But um, to our knowledge, nobody had tested that. So we developed a study where we induced a neuropathic pain state after um, abstinence from oxycodone in our case. So we trained mice to self-administer oxycodone. They finished that. Then we put them through a first drug-seeking test and then counterbalanced animals based on performance in that first drug-seeking test. Then half the animals got a spared nerve injury, half did not. So this produces a neuropathic pain state. And then we looked at drug-seeking two weeks later in male and female mice. So here's one of those uh, stories where you get a sex effect. So in females, we saw that spared spared nerve injury would increase oxycodone seeking, but it didn't do anything to sucrose seeking. Um, In males, didn't do anything. And then we also did uh, patch clamp recordings from dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. And um, I'll start by simply saying that we saw um, changes in intrinsic excitability in the females, but not the males. And that level of intrinsic excitability measured by the input-output curves Uh, was positively associated with the persistence of drug-seeking in individual animals, too. So that was a really exciting study. Um, Can't wait to get that published. But um, yeah, that's one way that we're looking at the impact of environment on drug-seeking. Yeah, well, that's that's really cool. But so with the... uh... With the differences in in sexes, and and if the answer is I don't know, you know that's totally fine. <laughs> but I know, you know, I just I, I actually just submitted an editorial yesterday um, mm-hmm. that I was asked to do for for a journal, and it was about the effects of progesterone and estrogen on um, brainstem nuclei that control um, our ability to sense CO two. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it was interesting diving into some of the literature, seeing that 
estrogen and, and progesterone acting on either its membrane or its um, uh, nuclear receptors can change the expression of um, excitability modulator channels, if you will, on mm-hmm. on on the neurons. Do you do you know if you know is the do you think the effect that you saw within the prefrontal cortex or the effect that you saw of um, the females having that increased propensity to have the drug seeking behavior following the the trial was a function of progesterone or estrogen modulation do you think like that behavior cycles <laughs> during that we don't know and it's it's really difficult to say if it cycles also because it, the the measure is fairly variable and you'd have to be quite well-powered to detect if there was any cyclical nature to it. Uh, Um, So, yeah, we have not gotten that far. We have not begun to look for mechanism or or anything. All we've done so far is observe that the behavior and the electrophysiology track together. But, um, you know, next in line is to really uh, look for necessity of that uh, change in excitability and dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. Like, you know, so it does, is this just something that's happening? Um, we actually think it's more than that, but we haven't yet demonstrated that um, by inhibiting cells in this region um, that we can suppress that elevation and drug seeking behavior. Uh, you got to do the uh, the overectomies and then supplement infusions of the uh, the female sex if, hormones. <laughs> if we get the funding to do that, then yes, <laughs> that's that's covered. another project. Yeah, <laughs> I know the projects just like stack up really fast. Mm-hmm. So, so then with the you know the the separation then of sort of the analgesic effects or the desensitization over time with you know in particular with opioids but also with the other drugs as well um, being cocaine with the monoamines or anything like that separating you know those physiological effects from um, uh, the the drug seek like the actual seeking behavior <laughs> itself sort of a behavioral effect I guess we can see even though they sort of interplay with each other. What comes to mind is there was this train of thought for a long time, and I don't know if it, it's still relevant or not, but when there were some studies looking at uh, addiction forming with cigarette smoking, mm-hmm. it was a question of, especially with you know nicotine being brought up as in some social media sites as this nootropic agent, you know, <laughs> so you, you know, you see all mm-hmm. these like pro and con things for nicotine, um, and the idea was at least for a while at that. The, the nicotine in and of itself wasn't necessarily an addictive substance per se, but rather the, the behavior that went along with the cigarette smoking. So whether it be taking a break from work to get a smoke break or whether it be, you know, you wake up, you have your coffee and uh, it's sort of that, <laughs> that moment that you have away from all the stresses in the life. And it was the, the idea that that itself was the addictive property and the nicotine was just sort of a reinforcer to that. Yeah, there's a really fascinating literature on nicotine. And so, yeah, as you alluded to, it it's really good at enhancing effects of other things that are going on. And so the rodent literature has really focused on the impact on uh, visual and auditory stimuli. So actually, as a postdoc, I did some work on the ability of primarily visual stimuli to serve as reinforcers themselves. Um, and we didn't do any work with nicotine, but there's a, a good amount of literature out there 
showing that if you do self-administration of nicotine in rodent models with strong visual cues like flashing lights that are paired with the nicotine, it's very, very reinforcing. But in the absence of these cues, it's actually very hard to establish nicotine self-administration in a rodent model. So it really seems, and, but I should back up and say that the nicotine does enhance the reinforcing um, effectiveness of those visual stimuli. So it's definitely having an effect. But as you mentioned, it seems to be kind of bolstering the reinforcing value of other things that are happening along with it. Ah, interesting. So it's almost acting like a a modulatory influence onto whatever other neural circuit is creating a, a habitual formation. Right, right. Now, it is extremely habit-forming, as you probably know. (laughs) I mean, the numbers on it are, you know, compared to other other drugs, even such as heroin, you know, looking at uh, individuals who try it and then one year later will see uh, dependence or heavy use, uh, nicotine's at the top of the list. Interesting. Well, you know, because that's something that I wondered with, there's always the the back and forth between the the low efficacy of the nicotine replacement therapies, whether mm-hmm. it be gum or, or patches or anything like that. And it, it always piqued my interest because of the fact that, you know, I had wondered since, since you're, even though you're giving yourself the nicotine, if the nicotine itself isn't the only thing that's driving the behavioral addiction, then mm-hmm. just administering it and getting, is not going to help all that, <laughs> all that much. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, like like many substances, there are some withdrawal effects from nicotine. They're not life-threatening or anything for the majority of people, but they're unpleasant and that can drive continued use. But yeah, I mean, one of the big differences with the nicotine patches and smoking is the kinetics of it, right? And so, so the pharmacokinetics. So when you smoke, that's really... If you want to get something to the brain, that is the fastest way there. That's faster than an intravenous infusion, unless you're unless you're going into an artery. Um, it's it's more rapid and effective than an intravenous infusion. So you know, within a matter of seconds, you're getting a strong hit uh, of the dose, and it's coming off really fast. And for other drugs such as crack cocaine we also see that that has a lot to do with the uh, addiction liability, is that when you can get a reinforcing drug really rapidly into the brain at very high concentrations and um, perhaps less important, but oftentimes when they also come off or are cleared rapidly, that's when we see uh, drugs with a pretty high misuse liability. Uh So, you know, transdermal nicotine... It could be thought of almost as a different drug than uh, smoking nicotine through a cigarette or an e-cigarette or anything. Oh, that's wow. Because because it, it's interesting, especially because I, I had a paper that came out yesterday, actually, uh-huh. in the Journal of Physiology uh, that was doing a comparative analysis of morphine and fentanyl. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, the idea is that fentanyl is is always thought of as being much more deadly than that of of morphine. And so I asked the question yeah. of if if we normalize the effect on breathing, because the, the you know, the, the primary cause of death is from opioid induced respiratory suppression. 
And yeah. theoretically, if fentanyl is acting on similar set of receptors as that of morphine, then even though it's more potent, that wouldn't necessarily explain the higher cause of death because if you scaled the dosage, it's like like potency is is just how potent it is. It's not you would have to take right. the exact same amount of milligrams, you know, of each one in order to have the potency be an affecting factor. Mm-hmm. But but and so I scaled the dosage such that the amount of respiratory suppression was equal with the fentanyl and the morphine and looked at whether or not there were actually differences in the drugs or if it's just the fact that people are taking more uh, of the of the of the fentanyl. And and there were some differences that we saw in the, you know, fentanyl closed off the airway and morphine didn't. And it was <laughs> odd to me because theoretically the mu opioid receptor, I mean, there's there's a smattering of other ones that are a- agonized, but I, I thought, you know, I put in this discussion, I think there's probably something with the pharmacokinetics that changes the downstream signaling. And and is that, you know, is the speed at which something hits your brain that big of a factor? As far as signaling, that can be hard to tell. But, you know, there is evidence that different drugs that have a longer time in the binding pocket of the receptor can actually change the signaling dynamics uh, quite a bit as well. So it may have to do more with that, but but that's a good question. I don't know if just the speed at which, you know, if you're talking about like a drug tapering it in and, and more smoothly getting receptor occupancy as opposed to really rapid, large-scale receptor occupancy, I, I don't know how much that may impact signaling. But, you know, fentanyl is also, in terms of overdose rates, it's it's mixed in with a lot of stuff. And for many of these opioids, people just don't even know what they're getting. And so it's very common for uh, drugs like fentanyl or derivatives like carfentanil to be actually components in pills that are stamped to look like something like an oxycodone pill, where people think they know exactly what they're taking and Ooh, it's way different. And we see a lot of overdoses happening that way. Yeah. I suppose it would be, it'd be kind of difficult, you know, cause with the, um, I, I, I was just a, a reviewer a while ago and with one of the optogenetics things, um, with the implementation of optogenetics in order to sort of target specific neuronal types. Um, I think like, mm-hmm. One of the the perhaps confusing factors that I at least I find myself correcting in reviews a lot of times is that when you activate a certain cell based on the genetic uh, marking of it, so that you've you know you've expressed a certain receptor based on the genetic the genotype of that cell of interest, and you go in and you and you activate it, you're activating the whole cell. You're not just activating the channel in which that transcription factor is. You know? Right. And yeah, so, so oh, yeah, well, like, go ahead. I was just saying, like, I, I don't even know how you would get at the pharmaco within an in vivo system, how you would get at the activation <laughs> kinetics of changing, you know, being able to reproducibly manipulate how long it's in the pocket of mm-hmm. the of the receptor with something like chemogenetics or optogenetics or something. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, with the development of more chemogenetic ligands there there may be information coming out about you know how long those those drugs sit in the pocket i am not aware of any such information as of now but that would be a really interesting way to look at it i think that is being studied quite a bit in the realm of different opioid drugs though and so 
you know, there's some thought that bias signaling may arise from that too, that, you know, um, that time of occupancy may dictate uh, to some extent which uh, way you may have a signaling bias based on uh, canonical or non-canonical signaling to the opioid receptors. That'd be a, that'd be a breakthrough. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so with the, uh, you know, sort of off, back off, you know, from the tangent, but uh, with the with the idea of the um, environmental factors being this sort of modulatory influence on the risk of developing drug seeking behaviors or risk of developing substance use disorders, how important is uh, you know the the drug itself versus that of where you're actually taking the drug? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> well, there's a lot of different ways to answer that. Uh, I'll start <laughs> by saying, you know, one, I'm I'm not a clinician, so I don't even pretend to understand human behavior. But of course, there are a lot of different factors in humans that can drive these things. But, you know, a lot of people have done some really fascinating studies looking at animal models that have come up with some similarities between human and animal behavior in terms of that drug-taking environment, as you mentioned. So like Aldo Badiani has done a lot of work looking at, you know, uh, self-administration of different types of drugs in either the home environment or in a distinct environment. And it turns out for psychostimulants such as cocaine, animals prefer to take that in a distinct environment. And with opioids, they actually prefer to take that into a, a home or a familiar environment, I think is the more important um, aspect, is a level of novelty versus level of fil- uh, familiarity. And there's some evidence uh, from, from human studies to kind of back that up. And in fact, um, it's really interesting that you brought up the drug-taking environment because there's actually a phenomenon where uh, people tend to overdose more with opioids in um, in environments that they are not accustomed to. And there's a thought that there's a context-associated tolerance that occurs. There, there are with other types of behaviors. I'm not sure how well established that has been scientifically looking at, for example, respiratory depression, you know, the major cause of overdose, but at least from an epidemiological standpoint, you do in fact see that more more people overdose on opioids outside of their familiar uh, drug taking place. Yeah, I know some of the work at at U Chicago going on right now. Um, mm-hmm. Fred Garcia is looking at the conditional opioid overdose. Um, mm-hmm. So we're they're putting the 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 mice in you know their home cages, administering opiates, and then looking at putting them in novel environments and giving them them similar do- similar doses which that's that's uh that study's not for the faint of heart for trying to design the intricacies yeah. of <laughs> like having to match <laughs> but but uh good on them for that but mm-hmm. but it does bring up the the you know the idea of sort of this environmental stimuli influencing now the i guess the 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 question that i i wanted to put out put out there with it is do you think with the environmental aspect having such a you know profound effect on the behavior does i guess 
what's, what's the best way to word it? With, with being in, let's say, like a novel environment versus that of a, a home environment, you said like you, the, the, the individuals are more likely to seek, let's say, a psychostimulant within a novel environment versus that of a, a home environment. And the opposite might be true for that of, of opioids, for example. Um, how much of it is driving the seeking of the behavior versus let's say that you have a person that might have substance use disorder already established and Mm -hmm. you know does it change the underlying ability to um have a a behavioral response from the drug if that makes sense so like Mm -hmm. if if they're like with the opioid for example like if they're in pain when they're at home does it you know, start to offload the intrinsic or the endogenous endocannabinoid or the endogenous uh, um, endorphins that are already trying to suppress some of that pain such oh, that they need question. to seek external? I'm not sure about uh, what's known about pain experience, mm-hmm. like in an individual that's taking opioids by prescription at home versus outside. That's that's a really good question. I'm I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I, you know, <laughs> I'm just thinking of you, you. You should have some sort of intrinsic pain modulation occurring to some extent with the right, with, right, and, right. And yeah. yeah, that's a good question. I don't know how much that you know those like yeah. ascent or primarily descending pain pathways may change. Uh, for example, throughout a circadian rhythm or as an individual goes and throughout different environments that are known or less familiar. Yeah, that's interesting. So so with the, and you know, the reason that I was using opioids a lot for, for examples is because that you have sort of that pain to, uh, that, that pain aspect to, to use as an example. But mm-hmm. with the psychostimulants, that's what mm-hmm. kind of confuses me a little bit about it. And, and maybe you could shed some light on that if you if you have information is mm-hmm. with the stimulants, whether it be cocaine or nicotine or any of the dopaminergic or monoaminergic modulators, mm-hmm. what is the benefit per se to establish sensitivity, desensitivity or uh, drug seeking behavior? Like I can I can certainly readily see with the opioids and you get the pain and then you sort of. Yeah modulate the pain and then you, you sort of have this sort of uh, downward spiral that can occur and it's sort of easy to conceptualize these the drug seeking mm-hmm. behavior then but but with the stimulants it's always sort of confused me a little bit <laughs> yeah I mean I don't think there's an an evolutionary drive for this to have occurred I I suspect it's well you know there is a literature on um, the human personality trait of novelty seeking being associated with an increased likelihood of trying psychostimulants at an early age and some other um, associations you see like that. And so it may be akin to the what we discussed about nicotine where, you know, now you have an even more powerful psychostimulant um, that is enhancing the effects of other things that are going on. And so if you think about, you know, traditional clubs and other places where a lot of people will use these drugs, you know, there, there's a lot of stimulus, right? There's um, oftentimes loud music, crazy flashing lights, lots of people around, lots of energy and dancing. And so, you know, I think that it's 
it's another one of those drugs that can enhance an experience. And, you know, those drugs are also very good at, one, producing reinforcement on their own, but two, also um, becoming more effective at stamping in memories that accompany um, the use. And so, you know, dopamine is not just a neurotransmitter to um, only for motivation or other things like this, but it actually does promote learning. And so there is an evolutionary advantage to certain things like, oh, a giant cache of food being stamped in, like, oh, where is this location? I was foraging, etc. Um, and so psychostimulants can enhance that type of response too. Ah, so then with the, um, one of the things that, that has had me curious and I, 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 I stay like agnostic as to whether or not I have an opinion one way or another with, <laughs> you know, with the advent of, there's a lot of talk about, you know, these ice baths, which are, uh, uh, <laughs> stimulating of dopamine and norepinephrine for hours and hours or whatever. And, <laughs> and, you know, the idea is that there's sort of these existential benefits that might occur and, and sort of, you know, along that line, let's say if dopamine and norepinephrine are heightened, you might enhance the ability to learn certain tasks or reinforce things that occur afterwards. Um, <laughs> but I've always questioned the ability of, of, whether or not it might be just replacing one habit with another. And, and, <laughs> and by that, I, I mean, like, you know, that's if, let's say that you have this habitual, um, you know, <laughs> slow to get up in the morning and you have sort of this procrastination that has become somewhat of a addictive type of behavior. And now you have the person jumping in an ice bath and, okay, well, it's certainly going to wake <laughs> you up. That's for sure. <laughs> but, yes. but now, you know, you're trading the scrolling, uh, hit of of dopamine, if you will, or norepinephrine, or reinforcement that you're getting, or serotonin from the from the scrolling on Instagram versus that of <laughs> now you're just still getting your shot of of excitatory you know neuromodulators <laughs> from jumping in an ice bath, <laughs> and if if they you know the question I, I usually ask sometimes is well if you don't have your ice bath in the morning do you feel worse than you know when you do like then your normal state that you did before. Mm -hmm. said, well, yeah, of course. Like I feel even more groggy, kind of the, the, the age old conundrum with coffee, right? It yes. Makes you feel better. But then when you don't drink coffee, then you feel worse than you did to begin, <laughs> with, <laughs> begin uh -huh. again with. And so, you know, how much of that do you think is it seeking behavior in the sense that it's sort of, it's a, a, behavioral thing that they are getting themselves on a regimented structure of the day starting there versus mm -hmm. that of the actual hit of the the dopamine norepinephrine and serotonin that they get yeah it's it's hard to say but i i really appreciate how the dsm-5 the diagnostic and statistical manual 5 has been written to address substance use disorder so i mean it's not a particularly new revision now, but there was a large departure from the prior version that really took into account how an individual's daily life is impacted. And so I think you can take a person that now, you know, perhaps instead of taking cocaine in the middle of the day is, you know, waking up with an ice bath or something. Well, are they compulsively doing the ice bath or, you know, or Instagram or something like that? And are they still having these same issues? You know, did they lose a lot of friends? Are they missing appointments? Are they losing days from work? 
uh, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I I am one who really believes that substance use disorder or addiction is is really a spectrum of behaviors. I mean, there are certainly clear instances where you can see someone that has a long history of heroin use and, you know, has tried many times um, and failed to stop that pattern of behavior, um, et cetera. But, you know, the reality is that everybody has their crutches or whatever you want to call them, you know, particular behaviors that they do. And the real question is, is engagement with those behaviors disruptive to normal life? And of course, there are additional downsides to using pharmacological agents to do that, because depending on their drug, there may be um, either changes in the brain or potentially overt toxicity in the case of a couple of drugs. Um, But really, I I think that what some people have termed behavioral addictions still fall in to that same type of spectrum. And you do see, for example, like some people engage in gambling to the extent to where they lose their houses, their friends. It's completely disruptive to their nature. They may not be drinking alcohol while they're doing that. And and I think that's a large societal problem as well. So... So, so then, with the um, uh, with 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 the behavioral sort of aspects of the addiction or the substance use disorders, it it, it somewhat suggests, at least I, in my opinion, that there's this multi-network integration that occurs across many different brain regions. So it makes it a little bit more difficult to pinpoint a single region that may be driving a certain substance use disorder, and. You know, when you look at some of the uh, treatment options that might be traditionally available or at least studied within the literature, especially, you know, for for opioids, for example, you know, the methadone clinics or things like that. And, and when we go in to look for reversals for the uh, either the, the physiological effects of the opioids or, for example, or, you know, it, it could be for mm-hmm. methamphetamine or something like that as well. I, there's sort of that in, the, that innate idea that, okay, we need to find the area that it's most hotly causing an effect and we need to just reverse the effect gradually within that area. But mm-hmm. this would almost suggest that perhaps the treatment from even a, a neurological standpoint or neurophysiological standpoint is much more variable across all individuals, perhaps. Oh, I'm sorry. You cut out for just a moment. So I think I let, missed about ten seconds, fifteen seconds. Oh, can you uh, just so restate I, that part? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was, I was saying like when when we're going to look for innovative treatment options, and you know, it's easy like for submitting a grant or a paper or something to say here's the hub where opioids are very highly uh, targeting or methamphetamine is targeting or something like that. And we just need to gradually change the way that it modifies that network. But it would almost suggest from a behavioral standpoint that targeting substance use disorders and addiction is variable and involving a variable number of, of miniature neural networks across the brain in everyone, depending Absolutely. on how they have formed it. So I think I mean, I, I want to acknowledge that the substitution therapies are very effective, but I think that's one piece of the puzzle. So as you alluded to, I think 
you know, kind of tapering off and allowing the brain to slowly reestablish homeostasis from going to a state where, you know, perhaps alcohol was being consumed the majority of the waking hours to, you know, not having alcohol on board. Actually, it's extremely important to have substitution therapy there because it can be lethal actually to undergo alcohol withdrawal without it. But in addition to that, you know, there's there's the psychological component to it. And I think even at the physiological level, there's there are just processes that are not going to be completely remedied by a substitution therapy, but I think could potentially be targeted in other ways. And so actually, I suspect that um, newer therapies may be combined with substitution therapies to really try to address this too. Whereas the substitution therapy may be more involved in weaning an individual off of a particular substance that the brain has really adapted to, but then there may be other um, therapeutic strategies that help, for example, an individual gain um, executive function a, a bit better so they can actually make better decisions and then combine that with psychosocial uh, psychosocial therapies, group therapy, ensuring people have uh, strong social support, um, potentially things like uh, meditation and exercise. Uh, I really think that this is a disease, like many, that should be looked at from a, a number of different angles and that we don't just have one magic bullet, but if we really want to treat the disease, we have to treat it from a number of different ways. Well said. And so with the, with, from a, from a basic science perspective and, mm-hmm. and, uh, coming at it from, you know, let's say that you're, you're armed with the arsenal of the, the classic electrophysiologists, you know, quiver having patch clamping, mm-hmm. multi-electrode array recordings, even the high density neural recordings. Um, and you have optogenetics, chemogenetics, all sort of the, these classical tools, um, in, in a sense, in order to study addiction reversal uh, protocols or addiction, addiction reversal type of uh, strategies from a basic science point, how do you start to then integrate that individualized behavioral dependency on the drugs and now start to break it down into, let's say, reproducible genetic models or using some of these these tools that are somewhat tailored more towards um, phenotypes that have uh, less heterogeneity in expression. Right, right. Well, that's a tricky thing to do. There are some nice genetic models out there, especially in terms of alcohol misuse. And so there are a few different selectively bred lines for uh, rats that are high alcohol intake. Uh, versus low. And so that can give us some idea, especially about the genetics of the disorder. Um, But you're right. I mean, it's really hard to capture that heterogeneity. Um, Even using inbred mice, I will still say that we do see heterogeneity and it it may be um, difficult to capture some of that. But as I mentioned in in our other studies, we've at least looked at association between uh, intrinsic excitability of these uh, dorsal medial prefrontal cortex neurons and 
the persistence of seeking. And we do see associations there and such that, you know, our individuals that have higher seeking actually have higher intrinsic excitability in these pyramidal neurons um, within this region. So I think even when we are using animal models that may be more homogenous in their nature, for example, an inbred mouse, that we can still look for biological heterogeneity to explain some aspect of what we're looking at. Now, of course, that that completely ignores uh, genetic diversity. And so, you know, that's the path that we have chosen to take. But there are, there are other methods uh, by which people do that. And I'll just mention one other method is um, if you're familiar with heterogeneous stock um, uh, rats, these are purposely outbred a tremendous amount um, in order to really look at individual differences. But boy, those are, those are very large projects because to make genetic associations is um, something you have to do with large numbers. It's it's not a um, a small experiment or a small endeavor to take that on. Sure, it's like a it's like a center wide approach. <laughs> yes, but with, yeah. So, but so with the uh, um, what I did want to ask about too was with the rodents. Um, you know, with with behavioral effects of drug seeking per se, and I I, I almost think of it when I'm looking at my dog, for example, like when I give him food or when I try to train him to do something, it's very much like if A, then B, right? If mm-hmm. I do this, I get treated. <laughs> like, and especially when you see some of like the bird hunting dogs or something like that, like it does not matter what is in the way they will <laughs> right. just eat food. Uh, but with, let's say non-human primates or with, with us being humans as well, there's sort of that, uh, there's sort of that added layer of uh, understanding of a negative effect of mm-hmm. a certain drug. And at some point, the the drive to seek that drug or the drive to take that drug overrides that of the, the negative consequences of the drug. Mm-hmm. Do you know, like in, in the rodent models, uh, d- is there a similar phenomenon that can be sort of quantitated? There are, yes. So people have tried to apply DSM-5 criteria to rodent models <laughs> and um, as much as you can. Yeah. And so they, just like what you're alluding to in regard to negative consequences. So one such model is looking at compulsive drug use, um, generally in spite of being uh, getting a, a mild shock every so often, like an unpredictable. Uh, It's not that every time you go to get drug, you'll get it. Um, But sometimes that's associated with it. Or in some cases, an electric barrier where animals have to physically walk onto uh, an electrified grid. You know, it's not enough to do tissue damage, but it's it's unpleasant. They do not like that. And so they have to walk on top of that in order just to press the lever um, and in many cases, they don't even get the drug. That's just a seeking test. Um, but then also there's another really interesting model that incorporates choice. And so, you know, one of the kind of aspects that we think of in regard to substance use disorder is that a lot of times those natural rewards, such as social interactions and things like this, they actually become diminished in those individuals. And it does seem like that can recover over time. Uh, That's also going to depend on the 
particular substance and how much history as to how much that can happen. But, um, but yeah, with the, the newer models have tried to incorporate that choice where animals will get like, for example, 10 choices and they learn extensively that this is the case. You know, if you go to door number one, you get cocaine. And if you go to door number two, you get sugar and, um, you can titrate it in such a way to where you get, for example, um, even approximate even choices and then do if you can envision like a dose response determination where, you know, if, for example, the work in order to get um, sugar is so high, then the animals will switch to cocaine. So in those models, it, it really depends on those parameters. But most people have shown that um, rats, at least, will generally prefer sucrose over a drug like cocaine. But if you kind of change the workloads, you can reverse that. Ah, interesting. So, so what you're saying, so I, I, I built a little micro circuit thing for my dog, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because as any sort of, uh, any sort of budding neuroscientist does, right. They start <laughs> to get into electronics. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so I programmed a little board that, um, it has an ultrasonic sensor. And so if his snout gets within two centimeters of the ultrasonic sensor, then it delivers a treat out of the bottom. Oh, you know? perfect. And, yeah. And so I can, <laughs> I, I've been recording his learning process. Right. And so, uh-huh. Now what you're saying is that I have to incorporate an electric fence in front of it. To see. <laughs> oh, you could do all kinds of crazy things. Now, if you want him to, uh, if you want that snout to go crazy, don't don't give him a treat every single time. Do it yeah. about, you know. Well, I've learned change with, up that. <laughs> I've learned with the with the different training treats. You know, some of them kind of get stuck in there, and so he's sort mm. of you know in, intrinsically you already doing it himself it's a little and, bit more of a random ratio that way so yeah, yeah take a take a lesson from the um the gambling casinos they know exactly what they're doing <laughs> that's true that's true yeah random did, reinforcement schedules are very effective <laughs> I, I did notice that before he just sort of okay tr- you know snout treats not treat and then the other day when i switched the treats and you know there was a few times where you could because you can hear the little servo motor uh-huh. and uh you know so he goes there servo motor hit he looked down there's no treats and then uh-huh. you know he went up really fast looked down no treats and then he <laughs> just started hitting it uh-huh <laughs> And I thought, whoa, okay, now it's uh, now he really wants it. Yeah, so once you've established that behavior pretty well, stop giving the treats and you'll see what's called an extinction burst where there's... So this is how we do our drug-seeking tests, right? We do... So everything's the same and he'll hear that servo motor, but there's no actual treat coming out. So he's going to bang on that thing with his snout a bunch and, you know, yeah. he might rip it apart, so... Careful about that. <laughs> uh, it's, it, well, it's funny, you know, that it works better in my dog than it does sometimes with, uh, we have some mice that have, you know, the, the neuropixel implants uh-huh. of the high density and yeah. uh, we're doing some different challenges with gases and stuff. And one of the, the tricks is always to get them to go into a certain box versus another one. But mm-hmm. for the dog, it's no problem, but it's probably because he trusts me. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> But so, so then the last, you know, the last thing that I I wanted to ask, you brought up the, the idea of there being that barrier to entry, if you are barrier to actually getting access to the certain drugs. And and in some sense, it almost seems like, you know, if you increase the the barrier to get the drugs, then the drive almost becomes more sometimes, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and 
obviously, like you said, casinos are, are, are very good at uh, putting those random randomizations <laughs> in there that really gets people to, you know, go for it. How, when, when you start to implement that idea within treatment, um, you know, it's, it's somewhat counterintuitive because now you go to wean someone off of a drug yeah. or you make it harder for them or you put them on a schedule where they can't access the drug at certain times that it may actually cause the, the drive to seek even higher, which is the opposite effect of what you want. How does, how does that work with the, the treatment approach? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you are exactly right. When you limit intake, um, there's a nice body of literature on this. Yeah. You get elevated drug intake. So if you have animals like rats, give them say 10 minutes on 10 minutes off, then those 10 minutes, they actually will take more, even though they have half the access time, they'll take more drug than if you gave it to them for a whole, say, three-hour session or something. And so, to incorporate that into treatment, but that's one of the challenges, I think. Yeah. Uh, boy, I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost it's almost the classic, you know, the person that drinks one, one beer every night and then that's all they ever have versus the one that says, I'm going to, I'm going to hold myself until the weekend and then they binge drink. Maybe if you just had one a day, it would have been, <laughs> you would have had less per Exactly. Week. <laughs> but anyway, so what's on, what's on the horizon for the Olson lab? I know you're, you're submitting grants. Right. I uh, have a number of grants in. We're about to put a few papers out, but uh, so we have some really exciting uh, progress on our, I mentioned some of the work we're doing with uh, neuropathic pain. Uh, we've published a number of papers looking at the impact of mild traumatic brain injury on drug seeking. And uh, with a number of these, we, we don't see that many effects, but where we have seen and re, uh, reproduced data is with an injury model that occurs before oxycodone self-administration. And so the animals actually don't take any more oxycodone that have been injured um, compared to the sham injured animals. But where we see the differences are after abstinence, if we give them those extinction sessions where we're testing drug seeking, uh, we see for up to 10 days, the animals have higher drug seeking and then if we re-expose them to drugs, so now we say, okay, here, here's another try. You can have some oxycodone again. Now they're actually higher. So we, we think that there's an interaction between the opioids and the injury, and we've shown that actually with structural and functional MRI. Um, but we also think that there's an interaction between the drug and the injury such that um, after a a period of abstinence is where we really see some changes occurring that are increasing the seeking and potentially reinforcing value of uh, the oxycodone. So oh, fascinating. We are looking forward to expanding on those studies and kind of uh, looking at immune signaling in regards to a potential mechanism driving that. And uh, we also have a series of studies where we study 
Um, <clears throat> since you're doing neuropixels, you're taking a very different approach than we are, but I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of neuronal ensembles, mm -hmm. where we have a collection of cells in a particular brain region that are thought to drive a, a specific behavior. So our approach is to use activity-dependent uh, tools, so using like the CFOS promoter to drive either a tag or a chemogenetic receptor to and where we, just we can... Got those, we just oh. got the, the trap twos that we've been playing okay. with. So you probably yeah, have yeah. similar ones, yeah. So we, we are using the doxycycline-controlled um, system, but the same idea. And so, yeah, in dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, we've found, and we're not the only ones, but we've found that cocaine-seeking can really strongly be suppressed just by inhibiting a small number of these ensemble cells in dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. But we've also shown that that's not interfering with recall of a fear memory, which is also yeah. dependent on the same brain region. And so, you know, we it doesn't seem like we're strongly disrupting the function of the prefrontal cortex as a whole, and we're not interfering with general memory retrieval, it seems to be associated with that drug-specific memory. Ah, fascinating. That's, uh, that's, that's probably like looking, so we look at rhythmogenic networks. And so when uh -huh. we put it, so when we put in the multi-electrode or the high density recording, uh, there's always these on transient and off transient events where the, the cells sort of ramp their spiking up and then they do a burst and then they go into refraction. And then, you know, you sort of have that, that persistent sodium type of driven currents that are going along within mm -hmm. the network. And, uh, so with, with the, uh, the, the geometric analysis, if you will, of the, the ensemble activity, it's, it's always a question of how much of these is just, you know, it creates this sort of donut like pattern, but you'd <laughs> always expect a donut like pattern when you have a ramp on and a ramp off. And so mm -hmm. sort of, uh, you know, everything that we're looking at is on top of an thing that never stops moving in the first place, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, versus, uh, I think it's cool when you look at like the prefrontal data or the hippocampal data or something like that, when you, you actually see sort of these, these, uh, these sort of time and space locked events, uh, mm -hmm. that are linked, that are sort of linked to a behavior, but well, that's exciting. So is there, uh, yeah. any, uh, any plugs for the lab or anything that you wanted to put on? Oh, well, uh, like I said, the pain paper is in bioarchive right now, and uh, we're submitting it now. Have a, a bit of other work, just uh, should be published within the next couple months. So maybe just a uh, Olson Lab MCW Twitter uh, shout out to keep an eye on what our lab is doing. I Perfect. think I remembered that right. I, I haven't looked at our actual handle in a while, but <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tag it in the show notes. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Perfect. And for the listeners, www.theneuralnetwork.org. And you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and any of your major podcast players. So 